Welcome to Thrive Church. We are so happy to have you here with us, whether you are watching in person or online. We welcome you here to Thrive. I'm Judah, lead pastor here, and we have locations here in Terryville, Torrington, New Britain, and online. And, and I just want to, to throw this out there because, um, you know, some changes have been going on in our world, and the CDC has recently uh, allowed for those who have been vaccinated to go without masks. So we, uh, we welcome that if you feel comfortable doing so. If you don't feel comfortable doing so, then by all means, keep your mask on. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've heard people say that they're saving on all this makeup because all they got to do is the makeup from the mask above. So um, you're welcome to do uh, uh, that if you're comfortable as well. But we welcome you here to Thrive, and we are continuing our series called Restored. Restored. And, and throughout this series, we've been taking a look at the restoration process that Jesus does in our lives and, and different characters in Scripture who were restored. You know, if we're honest about it, we've all been in need of restoration from time to time in our life. All of us have, have sinned. All of us have pain in our life that needs to be restored. All of us have uh, had times where we're broken inside due to relationships, due to loss, all kinds of things. We have shame in our past, and we're in need of a restoration. Now, it doesn't matter who you are, you're likely in need of a restoration. It doesn't matter if you're poor or if you're rich. We all have need of restoration. It doesn't matter if you're single or married. Doesn't matter if you're uneducated or brilliant. And the person that we're going to be looking at today in Scripture dedicated his life to his study, and he dedicated his life to his faith. He was an educated person. It seemed from outward appearance that he had all uh, everything together. He had it made. He was a brilliant person. If we look in John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Now, generally speaking, when we are reading Scripture and we see something about Pharisees, we generally think that it's probably going to be something negative. We, we see a lot of talk where Jesus was coming against the Pharisees. He was challenging them. He was even condemning them from time to time. And, and Pharisee in the Bible is not a particularly good characteristic. But here we see a man who was a religious leader and was a Pharisee. Pharisees were interpreters of Jewish religious law. That's what they did. At the time of Jesus, there was about 6,000 people who considered themselves Pharisees. There was another group of people, and they called themselves Sadducees. Now, Sadducees and Pharisees was very much like a, a political system that we have today with Democrats and Republicans. It, it, it's, a, it's a different approach to a document. These people, they would study the Torah, they would study God's word, and the Pharisees would tend to interpret it one way, and the Sadducees would tend to interpret it another way, much like Democrats and Republicans look at our founding documents and tend to interpret them in different ways. That's very much the same as what was going on here in this time. 
And this man, Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. But not only was he a Pharisee, he was also in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like, kind of like the Supreme Court or, or maybe like, 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 like the Senate. Like, so not only did he ascribe to a particular belief system, but he was in the governing body. The Sanhedrin was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees tended to be a little bit more upper class. The Pharisees tended to be a little bit more working class. And, and they would discuss the intricacies of the law. They would discuss the intricacies of, of biblical law, things that like, like the Sabbath rules. You know, many of us have heard one of the Ten Commandments, which says, keep the Sabbath day as holy. And that implies that we're not to work on the Sabbath. Well, it was up to the Sanhedrin to determine what that actually meant. What constitutes work and what doesn't constitute work. For example, sowing or planting seed would be considered work. So it was forbidden for them to do that on the Sabbath. This was the seventh day of the week, equivalent to our Saturday. They could not plant seeds in the ground. They also could not reap crops. So if, if they were in harvest time, they could harvest six days. But on the Sabbath, they could not do that. They couldn't shear sheep because, again, this was a kind of work that they would do. They couldn't polish something because, again, this was a type of work. They couldn't build things either. So, so the Sanhedrin would set these guidelines, but then they realized, you know, that's not quite enough. Like, not only do we think that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath, but also you shouldn't do anything that seems like work on the Sabbath. For example, if you had some cut flowers in your home, you could not pour water in them because it was causing them to grow, which was similar to sowing a field. You couldn't climb a tree on the Sabbath because you might inadvertently break a branch or knock some fruit out of the tree and therefore be harvesting something. You know, you, you could not cut your fingernails on the Sabbath because you're trimming something that's on, you know, a living being, which is very similar, apparently, to shearing a sheep. This was crazy. You couldn't lather soap for your hands because in doing so, you'd be polishing your hands together. Now, now this one's a little bit more modern, but, but you could not open up an umbrella because that's considered building something. So, so you can see that, that they got a little bit crazy, a little bit esoteric. They figured that wasn't quite enough, though. They said, not only can you not work, not only can you not do something that seems like work, but you also can't think about work. And they said, so you can't, in your mind, plan for the work week ahead. I mean, this is how intricate and nitpicking, you can imagine debates going on late into the night about whether or not you could wash your hands on the Sabbath day. That's what these people would talk about. And it seems insane to us, but I believe that, that they did this at least initially out of a desire to please God. Like they wanted to follow his rules. They wanted to follow his guidelines. And I, I think that their intent was likely good, but after a while it became more about following the law than about following God. And that's where we often see Jesus rebuking them because they were more intent on following the law than on following God. In your notes, if you're taking them, many people would rather follow rules than follow Jesus. They'd rather follow a rule than Jesus. Why? Because rules are cut and dry, right? Rules say, do this, don't do that. 
Like, it's, it's okay to rinse your hands in water, but don't lather up soap. They're like, okay, you've set the standard. But when we have to follow God, it requires us to have a relationship with him. Now, this is how Nicodemus, or Nick as we may call him, this is how he lived his life. On the outside, he had it all together. He was respected. He was set apart. He was above average. He was well-educated. He was living the model Jewish life. But in your notes, God isn't impressed with your behavior. God isn't impressed with just the good things that you do. God isn't impressed with simply your ability to keep the law if there is no relationship with him. So, we see that this man, Nicodemus, was a Pharisee. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. In verse 2, he says, After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us, and your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So here we see Nicodemus coming to Jesus. When is he coming to Jesus? When? At nighttime, right? This isn't hard. This is the original Nick at night, okay? So Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night. Why, why is he coming at night? Like, I don't know why. But many speculate that maybe, perhaps, he was nervous about what the other religious leaders would think. We don't know this for sure, but this is one of the speculations is why he came at night. Jesus was out there making waves. Jesus was doing all of these miraculous things, miraculous signs, and now Nicodemus comes there at night. What does Nicodemus call Jesus? He says, Rabbi, Rabbi. This means teacher, rabbi. This is a respected name. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see a religious leader calling Jesus rabbi. This, in essence, was one rabbi, one religious leader, speaking to another, at the very least, as equal, but possibly even as a superior. There, he, he's validating the fact that Jesus is a rabbi. Now, here I have uh, my ordination papers. You know, I, I'm ordained to, to do what I do. And, and the way that, that in our tradition, the way that this works is, is that once you kind of prove your ministry, there's other ordained ministers who are also pastoring churches and doing the work of God that, that have been watching and examining your life and your ministry and your teaching. They want to make sure that, that you're speaking the truth of God's word and not manipulating it, making sure that your life is in order. And then at such time, they come together and say, yes, we recognize you as a minister of the gospel. That's essentially what the ordination is. But that's also, in a way, what Nicodemus was doing to Jesus, saying, I recognize that you are, in fact, a rabbi. You're a rabbi. He says, and we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So he knows that God is with him, and he's seen or heard of some of the miracles just shortly before Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. Just shortly before Jesus was in a temple where they were price gouging the, the prices of the sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus flips over the tables, ruffling a lot of feathers, and yet... This man, Nicodemus, heard that and realized he's a person of power. There's many more miracles that Jesus did as he's in Jerusalem at this time, 
for the Passover. Nicodemus, up until this point, had been the person who had all the answers. He was the person that you would ask if you had a question about God, but you see now that he also had questions of his own. We always focus on how Jesus came for the broken, and he did. We often talk about how Jesus came for the, for the hurting and for the rejects, and he did. Thank the Lord, because we're all here. You know, God came for people like us. But this man is a little bit different from the tax collectors. He's a little bit different from the prostitutes. He's a little bit different from some of the common people that Jesus would often hang around. This is a man of authority. He spends his life studying the holy words. He was educated, he was respected, and he was important, but he was still missing something. Just like you two used to say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And that was the position that Nick finds himself in. He knows a lot, he's lived a lot, but he still hasn't found what he's looking for. This has been a lifelong pursuit for him. Pursuing scripture, trying to understand what pleases God. Does it matter if I cut my nails on the Sabbath day or not? And, and, and here he is on a dark night. And the night is dark, but he's coming to Jesus. You know, it, it's often very hard for somebody who thinks they have it all together to admit that they don't actually have it all together. If you've ever been in a situation like that before, you understand. Maybe you've been successful. Maybe you were in a happy marriage. People looked up to you, but then the marriage fell apart. Your success came crumbling down. Your education fell apart. It, 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 it's very hard for somebody that seems like they have it all together to actually admit, I don't have it all together. And here we see this man whom everybody would revere, and he's coming at night to Jesus. Many are critical of the fact that he came at night, saying, well, he was just afraid, but at least he came. If you are in a dark time, it's time to come to Jesus. In your notes, if you find yourself in the dark, turn to Jesus. If you find yourself alone, now is the time to turn your life to Jesus. If you find yourself with questions, questions about your faith, questions about life, this is the time to come to Jesus. This is the time to look for the light. Don't go looking for things that bring darkness. Let's fix our eyes on the light. And that's what Nicodemus did. Continuing in verse 3, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, what do you mean? Exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now just pause and think about that for a moment. Like that's kind of a disturbing thought, right? Like how, how does a grown man Go back in his mother's womb and be born again. Now, now he, he wasn't taking Jesus literally here, but they're kind of having a little bit of a play on, on words. And Jesus is saying, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So how can an old man go back in his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water, the natural birth, and the spirit, the spiritual birth. Now, the problem is that this term, uh, born again, seems like it carries a little bit of baggage in our world. 
You know, usually when you hear somebody talk about someone who's born again, it's not a compliment. Like, it's usually something that you're kind of slandering somebody. Many people think, oh, the, the, the born-agains are the person, the people out holding the, the picket sign saying turn or burn, and, and they're acting all goofy and, and things like that. But, but this word born again, these words born again, literally means born from above. Born from above, that we've received a new life. See, Jesus here is talking about a complete transformation. Not, not just something simple, not just changing a little behavior, but a complete transformation. See, we are often concerned with behavior, but God is concerned with transformation. Nicodemus most likely was looking for a little bit of a behavior change, a little tweak to the life that he had been living. Maybe Jesus could provide some insight on this controversy of scrubbing your hands with soap and if that is work or not. But Jesus, no, he didn't come after these things. He was looking for life change instead. Many people say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And Jesus is saying, I want to make you a new dog. I want to make you a new person. I want to make you new. See, in your notes, following Jesus isn't about trying harder it's about starting over. Many of us, we want to, want to, oh, if I just try harder, if I just do more, if I just read more scripture, if I just come to church more, if I just pray more, if I just help more ladies across the street. I don't know why people say that. I don't know why all these old ladies are wanting to cross the road anyway. But here's the thing. We're like, if I could just do more, then maybe God will love me and accept me. And God said, no, I want you to start over. I'm giving you a new life, a new life. You must be Born again, the old is dead, the new has come. He says, can you go back into your mother's womb? Of course not. But here's, here's why I think Nicodemus said that. Because if there was a person who came and they wanted to convert to becoming a Jew, they wanted to convert to Judaism, there was a method, there was a way for them to convert to being a Jew. There was this process and procedure that they would go through, and they would then become a Jew, but what they would not become is a child of Abraham. See, there was like different levels. Like you could be a Jew, but are you a, a Jew? Are you a child of Abraham? This is why throughout Scripture we see so many genealogies because people would pride themselves in being able to track their ancestry back to Abraham. And even more specifically than Abraham, the exact tribe of Israel where they came from. Because then they could say, I am not only a Jew, but I'm a, I'm a Jew's Jew. I'm a child of Abraham. So in Nicodemus' mind, say anybody that just converts is, is kind of second rate. So if I'm going to join this new gathering, this new following, this new belief system, what am I going to do? How can I be born again? How can I go through that process again? But Jesus was talking about a new birth and a new life. Then Jesus lays it all out for Nicodemus. This is debatably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And it was spoken not to a crowd, not as a sermon. This verse was spoken one-on-one -on -one to Nicodemus. John 3, verse 16. It says, For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is laying it all out for Nicodemus. 
He's saying, this is the way to get to God. I can tell, Nicodemus, that you're searching. I can tell that you've lived your life trying to be the best person that you can be, and even you realize that your best is just not good enough. But my Father loves you so much that he sent me that anyone who believes in me wouldn't have to perish but have everlasting life. Now, we don't know much about what happened next in the life of Nicodemus, but he does appear a little bit later on. Jesus is gaining popularity, and the Pharisees, the other people and and the, the group that Nicodemus was a part of, they wanted to arrest and kill Jesus. So something, though, had begun in Nicodemus's life. See, there's a transformation, and it often starts beneath the surface. In your notes, Jesus wants to change your heart, not just your behavior. Nicodemus is continuing to, to practice his uh, things that he does to be a Pharisee. He's continuing to be in the Sanhedrin, but now we see his colleagues wanting to arrest and kill Jesus. And in John seven forty eight, they're all together, and they say, is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they're ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. And in essence, they're saying only a stupid person would believe the claims of Jesus. Only somebody who has no understanding of the law. Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up and said, says this, it's not very earth shattering. He just says, is it legal to convict a man before he's given a hearing? Now, this isn't a huge defense. It's not like he's taking this great, big, bold stance. But I believe that Nicodemus is trying. He's trying to bring a delay. He's trying to to buy Jesus a little bit more time. He's sticking his neck out just a little bit. It's a small beginning, admittedly. But it's a transformation from where he once was seeking Jesus in the dark. Now, we find him sticking his neck out just a little bit. But the boldest move of Nicodemus is still coming. In John chapter 19, verse 38, it says, Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders. See, again, there was this peer pressure. This is peer pressure to just fit in with your surroundings, to not stand up for Jesus. But by this point, Jesus had already been crucified on the cross. And he's hanging there on the cross, dead. And Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple. Do we ever find ourselves in that situation when we're a secret disciple, where we're following Jesus, but we're not willing to speak out boldly on his behalf? Do we ever find ourselves in that situation? It's okay. It's the beginning of a transformation, but we need to continue to allow God to transform us. But now we see Joseph of Arimathea being the secret disciple, and he asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. And when Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came who? Nicodemus. Nicodemus was there, the man who had come to Jesus at night. And he brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Think about carrying 75 pounds for a moment. That's a lot of spices. You know, it was customary in in that time that if they were going to put spices on the body, that they would do so with about maybe five, four or five pounds of this. But they're carrying 75 pounds. 
was customary for them at the time to wash the body completely, to take anything that was in the body, wood splinters, thorns in his head, to pull these things out to, to clean this body in preparation for burial. And Nicodemus and, and Joseph are there. They're, they're seeing this man who is the Messiah lying dead there, and they bring 75 pounds of spices. They're overdoing it. I mean, by, by today's standard, that's about $12,000 worth of spices. I calculated it. I don't even know how much it was worth back then. Probably far more. This was an investment. They said, we want to honor him. And they probably felt like this is a little bit late. Like we were afraid. We were afraid to stand up for Jesus. We were afraid to take too big of a stance, but now we're going to take the stance. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen. They, the place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We see a progression that Nicodemus went through. We see him start with a secret meeting at nighttime, maybe hoping nobody would see that he's going out to meet this renegade, this radical, this healer of sorts. He's going out to ask him questions, but he calls him rabbi. Then we see him carefully sticking up for Jesus, but now we see a public profession by daylight. Now, don't underestimate this. He was a Pharisee. He was in the Sanhedrin. The last thing, you, we might have just passed right over it. It says it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover. This was the biggest holiday of the year for the Jewish faith, celebrating Passover. However, if you touched a dead body, you would be unclean for seven days. If you touched a dead body, you would not be able to celebrate Passover for at least another month. And if you think about this, Nicodemus' old way of life was saying, you're impure. You're unclean. You touched a dead body on the eve of our greatest celebration. You touched a dead body, and now you are unclean as well. But in this new life, he realized that he was pure. In this new life, he realized that he was forgiven. See, the transformation goes deeper than just our, the surface. See, the outside doesn't matter so much. It's not dependent on our behavior, but it's dependent on our Savior. See, God, he wants to give you a new life and it's easy for us to act religious to go through the motions saying praise god lifting our hands in church talking the talk wearing a jesus t-shirt putting a little fish on the back of our car it's easy for us to act religious but we must be born again we must be restored. We must be transformed. Nicodemus realized that Jesus was more than just a teacher. He's more than just a rabbi. He's more than just a healer, but he's the savior of the world. And he says, nothing I can do can save myself. I've been trying my whole life, and I feel like I'm still falling short, and there's nothing I can do that can save me. Only one thing can save me. Only one person can save me. You're not 
not my teacher, but you're my Savior. And when you see God in this new way, when you see Jesus, not as a teacher, not as a prophet, but as our Lord and Savior, then you'll experience a new birth, a new life. You'll be born again, and only Jesus can bring that restoration and that new life. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name. And we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you accept us as we are. We thank you that whether we're poor or rich, whether we're broken physically or whether we're healthy, that you are here for us. And just as Nicodemus came to you in the dark, we can come to you in our darkest hour. We can come to you in the moments that we have questions and we can seek your guidance and your help. If you're here today and you've never been born again, you've never experienced the new life that Jesus is offering to you, don't let another day go by. To accept his free gift of eternal life, just as Jesus told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have life everlasting. If that's where you are, won't you call on his name? Say, Jesus, you are my Lord. I put my faith and trust in you. So, Lord, let us come to you boldly. Let us come to you boldly. Do the work that only you can do. Bring the transformation that only you can bring. Bring the healing that only you can bring. Bring the freedom that only you can bring. And Lord, we come to you. We come to you now. We say our past, it doesn't matter. The good things, the bad things, we're coming to you. We're coming to you saying, save us, O Lord. Give us the new life. We want to be born anew, born again. Have the new life that you promise us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can go and visit us at www.thrive.church. If you're ever in the area, we'd like to invite you to come and join us. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, we encourage you to leave a rating, review, share with your friends and family. Until next time, may you grow deeper in God's word each day.